Hi, welcome to the Tax Chick Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Doucette, a self-proclaimed foodie, spin class, and Pilates enthusiast, and a tax lawyer. I fell into the practice of tax law despite having a lifelong hatred of spreadsheets, math, and numbers in general. Tax is complex, but it does not always have to be so complicated and shrouded in mystery. Join me and my guests as we unpack some serious tax topics and attempt to demystify the world of tax. Today, my guest is Jenea Dino. Jenea is the owner and operator of Bright Rock Financial, a full-service financial planning firm focused on retirement planning, investment, and insurance. And since 2008, Jenea has helped her clients achieve a work-optional lifestyle. Through her proven financial planning approach, she has partnered with the top portfolio management companies in the country to provide truly independent advice. Jenea is married to Dean, and they have two children, ages eight and six. Jenea is an avid reader. She is usually reading two to three books at a time. She loves traveling and has spent most of her travel time in Europe. Jenea attributes her financial success to having a strong foundation in financial literacy skills at an early age. And I will put some more details on how to connect with Jenea in the show notes. Now, the other thing that's helpful about Jenea that's sort of important is Jenea is my financial advisor. <laughs> I'm taking ownership over her. She is so awesome. And I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. So welcome, Jenea. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I thought we could talk a little bit about how we initially met because we've known each other for probably about five years now. Yes. Yes, we have. And I had gotten referred to you. Um, following a divorce, I had not really had any proper financial planning, and a friend of mine, a colleague at work, yeah. was like, oh, you got to phone up Jenea. And so I phoned you up, and I had a meeting with you, and there was just an instant connection, mm-hmm. and now you're stuck with me. Absolutely, and I love it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, I always ask my guests the same two questions. Mm-hmm. So are, are you ready? I am, yeah. <laughs> I, I had to go back and uh, look at a few things just to make sure I can answer it, but yeah. I know everyone takes it very seriously. So so the first question is, what is the last podcast that you listened to? Well, I usually have a few on the go because I can usually only listen to about 15 to 20 minutes at a time. My okay. kids hate listening to podcasts in the vehicle <laughs> as I'm driving. So um, actually, the last one, I started playing podcasts that they like. So one is called Little Stories for Tiny People. And they just love it because they just zone out. They look out the window. They're not tied to any screens or anything. And they're just calm. And they just love the the calmness. So this this is like children's stories. But for me, there's a couple podcasts that I listen to almost religiously. So yours is one of them. Oh, gee, I thanks. love it. I feel like people feel like they have to say that. No. But you don't actually have to say that. Well, it's good because, I mean, we're in Saskatoon. And you do interview a lot of people from Saskatoon. So that's always good. The other one is growing your financial advisory practice podcast. So one of the the financial planning software that I I pay a subscription to, um, he interviews financial planners on their advisory practices. And a lot of them are actually fee-based planners. There's a few that are commission-based, but um, yeah, he's really good. And then Manulife Investments, the chief economist, um, has a podcast, and Mauer Investments, which is another portfolio manager that I like to listen to. So I usually have a few going on the go because it's like, oh, well, what do I want to listen to today? So... Well, yeah. I feel I feel like I just don't listen to enough intellectual podcasts. I always feel really bad when people come on and they tell me all these great podcasts they're listening to, and I'm listening to you know the recap of The Bachelorette from the previous <laughs> night and 90 Day Fiance. And 
<laughs> I need to get more cultured, I think. <laughs> well, I'm either listening to music or I'm trying to catch up on the world events and financial planning concepts just so, yeah, I can. Do you ever listen to books on tape? Are you an that I kind do. of person? I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, before podcasts, that's what I would do is I drive and listen to books on tape. But now I think more so I'm more into podcasts sure. just because they're short time frame and and uh, otherwise I can't get into a full book that way. But Absolutely. Yeah. It kind of gives you that food for thought. Mm-hmm. And I find it helps to kind of occupy your brain as you're driving. I'm the same way. I enjoy yeah. that too. So then the other question is, what is the emoji you use most often when texting? Are you an emoji person? I am. And I wish I wasn't because I get these texts from my mom all the time. And they're just like full of about 10 different emojis. And I, she just overuses it. But I only use like two I use the the winky eye okay. and the kissy winky eye. <laughs> okay, okay. Only because you know you're texting family so much that um, yeah. So yeah, my that's mom about is it. big in the emojis as well, and she always finds the different ones like before I know that they're out. She tends to find them and then she puts them at the end. And so since oh, the yeah. pandemic started, there's always like a roll of toilet paper and then <laughs> the face with the mask always comes at the end of every text. No, nice, <laughs> nice. love it well I'm really excited to have you on here today because I think that there are a lot of myths that are Mm -hmm. important to kind of debunk um, with financial planning and I mean I I grew up in a household uh, where my parents never really had a lot of money to invest and so uh, my dad had a pension plan through work but we never really had discussions about investments Mm -hmm. and then in fact I mean to say the word investments, like even as you were describing this economist and the podcast you were listening to, I could kind of feel the hair on the back of my neck go up because <laughs> I, I don't even like talking about it now. And and that's just the way yeah. I was brought up. Um, so I always feel totally out of my element, but I think it's important to talk about things that make you feel uncomfortable. Honest. And I am a super conservative investor, as you know. I don't mm-hmm. like any risk, and I'm kind of like that in my life as well. And uh, I'm prepared to accept that I'm probably never going to hit it big, and I'm okay with that. I've, I've come to that conclusion. But I feel very fortunate to have run across you when I did because I was feeling very unsettled about my finances at mm-hmm. that time in my life. And as a lawyer, I mean, we have no built-in pension plans. Right. There is no, um, no discussions about investments or retirement planning that happens in the law school context. And I had a lot of anxiety about financial stability. And I think it's still something that I'm kind of working through. And much of that hails from growing up in a home where we didn't have a lot of money for most of my childhood. And just a lack of understanding Mm -hmm. about what's happening and feeling like I'm not in control. And so I am a firm believer that everybody needs a financial planner, an investment advisor in their lives. Absolutely. It is a crucial person as part of your team. And Mm -hmm. and I'm so glad that you're part of my team. And, And today... What I'm hoping we can talk about is some of the basics about Mm -hmm. financial planning. So we were going to cover three topics, and I'm going to try to keep us on task. We might get excited and go off on a rail a bit. but This is my favorite I know. I love talking about it. If you guys could see her right now, she's brimming. (laughs) vibrating. She's she's so excited. (laughs) Um, So so topic number one is what is a financial advisor and how do they get paid? Mm -hmm. And 
as part of this, we're going to be talking a little bit about the financial planner designation. And then topic two is RRSPs and TFSAs and how they're taxed and what you need to keep in mind. And then the third topic is segregated funds, which is a phrase I did not know about until I met you. So let's talk about what segregated funds are, or sometimes I hear them called seg funds, like the really cool people call them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what are some of the pros and cons to that type of investment? So sure. without further ado, let's dive into topic one. What is a financial advisor and how do they get paid? Perfect. So the financial advisors come in many shapes, different sizes, colors. And I think it's really important that you find one that, yeah, you have a bond with and that you trust and who has sort of the same philosophy that you do. So like you said, you know, you're, you're a conservative investor, but there's a way to be there's a way to invest conservatively wrongly, and there's a way to invest conservatively rightly. So um, I usually start with kind of comparing financial advisors that you would get at a bank. So if you go to a bank teller, they are not a financial advisor and they are not an investment advisor. So if you walk into a bank and you go up to the teller and you say, I want to invest into my RRSP account, the only thing they're allowed and licensed to sell you is a GIC, which right now is 1.5% over a five-year fixed. And oh. what is a GIC, just to keep everybody sure. in the loop? So that's uh, a guaranteed investment certificate. So that basically says that you are guaranteed to get that interest rate over the next five years. And at 1.5% per year over five years, you're not even keeping up to inflation. So you got to take a little bit of risk. You got to get some investments. So to do it right, um, you can just start, you can open up an investment account online or you can talk to a financial advisor. So then you wanna find out, well, who is a financial advisor? So somebody that is, again, through a bank, if you do call up your bank and ask to meet with their advisor, they typically only take in a 90-day investment course. And I don't want to say anything badly because it's a great place if you're getting started. Like if you're just getting started on a plan, you're just getting started investing, that is the perfect place where you need to be. So I even have clients that have children and, and they say, well, how can I get my children to get started investing? Well, they just have to get started. Open up an account. You can't, you can't do anything wrong unless you're doing GICs. So just open up an investment account. But typically, your advisor at the bank will have done a 90-day investment course. So then you want to start looking at the designations. So right now, the newest one out there is PFA, the Professional Financial Advisor. And that one is a little bit more intensive. So you have to take, a, I think it's a one or two-year certificate type program. But the one that I really like, and this is if you've, you know, you've got some money invested, you want kind of that full financial plan, you want to look for a certified financial planner, so a CFP. And right now, they've just changed the rules that you actually have to have a bachelor's degree in order to get your CFP. So that rule came into effect. Actually, I think it's coming into effect January 1st, right away here. And so is the CFP additional certification then on top of the bachelor's degree? Yes, so yeah, your bachelor's degree is for your program, your CFP. Um, I did mine in about two years. It's probably a three to four year type of program. It is eight intensive courses, uh, followed by, there's actually two exams for it. So you, you, you do these eight courses, then you um, take one exam, then you write a full financial plan and get graded on that, and then you write the second exam after that. 
So to me, it was almost as kind of a master's program after your bachelor's of commerce degree in finance. <laughs> um, I just found it, it was probably the most worthwhile course I've taken a look at because it covers all of the right topics. It covers cash flow, insurance, investments, retirement planning, uh, tax planning, estate planning. So of course, a CFP is not going to be your accountant and not going to be your lawyer, but they are going to be able to be that bridge between your financial plan and when you need to go see the lawyer and when you need to go see the accountant. And so how would someone know if their advisor had a CFP? Typically, if you look at their credentials, they should have CFP after their name or they'll have certified financial planner or you can actually look it up on the Financial Planning Standards Council website, uh, fpcanada.ca. So if you go on there, you can just type in the person's name and find out if they've if they've got that accreditation. But typically, if you hold a CFP, I hold a CFP. I am proud of it. I worked my butt off for that. Mm -hmm. So I have it on all of my information. I have it on my email signature. I have it on my business cards. I have it on my website. So typically, if you look for that CFP, the person who holds that is going to be proud of it. They're going to hold it on there. And so... When you think about the concept of a financial advisor, mm -hmm. what, if you could distill it in a nutshell, what does a financial advisor do? Financial advisor would provide you investment advice on the investments that you hold. They may also provide retirement planning advice. Um, most of the ones that I've seen will just do sort of a projection to say, well, this is where you need to be and this is, you know, how much you should be putting away per month or per year into your plans in order to get to to that um, to that retirement goal. Okay. So more on just kind of the investment advising end of it would be a financial advisor. A financial planner then will take that information and say, okay, well now if you want to have you know this amount of income, if you want to have I don't know eight thousand dollars a month of income take home pay in retirement. And we're looking at the amount of Canada Pension Plan you're bringing in, your old age security, your registered investments, your tax-free savings accounts, the savings accounts that you've built up, possible any pension. This is how much we need to put away. And they're also going to take a look at your tax planning situation. So they're going to say, well, because you make um, $50,000 a year, we're going to do more tax-free savings accounts. Because you make $150,000 a year, we're going to do more RRSPs to get you a tax benefit. And then your financial planner will also uh, provide you on the retirement income stage on how much income you should be drawing from that so as to satisfy tax planning needs, so as to not claw back your old age security to make sure that um, when you die, then all of your assets are getting passed on to the next generation in the most efficient tax manner. So your financial planner should just go above and beyond um, pr just providing investment advice to you. So I think that this then begs the next question, because I, I have a lot of people say to me, well, Amanda, I don't need a financial advisor because I have a pension plan through work. So why, why do I need a financial advisor? Can you describe for a little bit why, why those people also need some advisory services? Absolutely. So pension plans are not like they used to be. So I have clients that have retired from the government um, and I'm talking they retired 10 years ago. Or I have clients that retired from CP Rail or as a teacher or um, 
I can't even say healthcare anymore because their pension's not that great. But pensions used to be where you would get your pension and you would receive a lifetime income from it. But now those those are called defined benefit pension plans. Those are gone. You know, you still see those types of pensions in a municipality government or a provincial or federal government, or teachers still have those, healthcare workers still have those, but companies do not have those anymore. They got rid of them, and now you have a defined contribution pension plan. So a defined contribution pension plan is not an income for life. It is a pot of gold. You could spend all the gold in the first year of your retirement, and then the gold would be gone. So how do you know, number one, if it's enough? And number two, is it enough? Typically, your defined contribution pension plan is only going to put away a certain amount of assets for you, and it's all concentrated in probably, you know, three to five investment options within that plan. So there's no diversification. It's really tied heavily to the markets, as we've seen lots of volatility, of course, over this past year. So it's really important to have, you know, not only assets, investment assets and savings on the side, but it's important to know, well, is this pension plan going to be enough for me to retire on and how long will it last um, should I want to retire? So I think that's really important is that you cannot depend on your pension plan at all um, right now, especially we look at healthcare workers. So in Saskatchewan, um, we have Saskatchewan Health Authority, and their pension is called Saskatchewan Health Employees Pension Plan. It is not an indexed plan, which means that once a healthcare worker stops working and starts receiving their pension, that's the same amount of income they are going to receive for life. So you can imagine what the value of that money is going to be like in 30 years from now. I mean, we look back and, you know, a loaf of bread (laughs) didn't cost four dollars 30 years ago like it does today so you've got inflation that's in there and if you're not saving other investments on the side or you don't have a plan in place with a financial planner then you're not going to have your financial plan built up to to take into account uh, your inflation risk so it's really important that you have a good plan and not just relying on that pension well and i think one of the things that you're saying that resonates with me is that one of the reasons also to get a financial advisor is to get knowledge. Mm-hmm. So it should be more than you can just sit there and say, well, I have a pension plan. You should be able to know what does that pension plan do? What is that going to give me when I retire? And to be knowledgeable enough to know what else that you might need because knowledge is power. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then let's talk about the question that nobody ever wants to talk about, which is how you get paid. And yes. and one of the things I loved about you when I first met you is that you were very open with me mm-hmm. and you've always been very transparent, even before the rules changed requiring transparency about how you get paid. And a lot of times I feel like people are reluctant to go and get an advisor because they don't know what it's going to cost them. And so that fear prevents them from making the call. So can you explain how fees work? Yes. And they're too scared to ask the question. Absolutely. So I always do a a 15 minute interview with um, a new client before we, before we delve in, before we dive in. Mostly I want to see if I'm the right fit. I get a lot of calls about, you know, debt management or, um, you know, reallocating debt. Well, I don't, financial advisors don't do that. That's what your banker is for. That's what your mortgage broker is for. Um, so I like to address fees at the upfront in that 15 minute conversation so that people are aware of it too. And so in Canada, we have kind of two types of 
income streams for financial advisors. One is commission-based, and I would say that 95% of financial advisors and financial planners base them off of commission base. And then the other 5% are based on fee-for-service planning only. Um, so when you look at the commission base, so if you, if you have an investment account, and let's say you're with RBC, you're in the RBC Global Balanced Fund. Actually, I just looked this up for a client the other day. So there's an MER, or Management Expense Ratio Fee, on that fund, on that mutual fund. And it's 2.1%. So of that 2.1%, that is how RBC gets paid. That is how the uh, portfolio manager that manages the fund gets paid. And that's how your financial advisor gets paid. So they don't, they don't get 2.1%. They get a very small percentage of that. And whether the MER is 2.1% or 3% or 1%, your financial advisor will get paid the same regardless of what the fee is. And that's to take the conflict of interest out. So you want to find out um, who is your financial advisor, how are they licensed. Then you want to find out who is their back office. Do they have a back office so that it's sort of regulating how that planner is working. And what do you mean by back office? Because I've heard this a number of times. Mm -hmm. And so what is a back office? A back office will make sure that your financial advisor is licensed. They will make sure that they carry errors and emissions insurance. Um, that they don't have any pending legal uh, criminal charges against them, that they haven't declared bankruptcy. So your back office really makes sure that the person you're dealing with is legit. And that's where all the commissions flow through. So for, like I said, this management expense ratio fee that comes off of these investments that you do, so this one's 2.1%, they'll pay a portion of that to the back office and then your back office for managing the financial advisor will keep a portion and pay the majority out to the advisor. But it's it's always a uh, the same flat fee so that it takes that conflict of interest out. And so does every advisor have a back office? Yes, they should. Okay. You cannot operate without one in Canada. And what are some examples of back offices? Mm -hmm. So if you're with the bank, you're the like if you're with an RBC advisor, RBC will be their back office. Okay. Uh, if you're with Investors Group, Investors Group will have a back office. If you're with uh, Freedom 55, they'll have a back office. If you're with Edward Jones, they'll have a back office. But then you have independent brokerage firms. Uh, mine is called Financial Horizons Group. They manage over 9,000 advisors across Canada, so they are a brokerage. Um, and so they will make sure that I'm licensed in order to be able to offer these investments to my clients. And where would someone look to find out who the back office is and what the MER rate is? Yeah, so you want to find out, um, you can go on to the Canadian Securities website and type in your advisor's name to see who are they registered with. And so who are they a dealing representative with? Um, you can also, of course, ask your advisor, like who is your, who are you backed by? Who is your back office? Um, most, if you, you can't just operate um, in Canada and start selling investments, you have to have a back office to, to back you and to legitimize you. 
That's really good. We're going to put that stuff in the show notes in terms of where people can search. And, mm-hmm. and now I feel like you've given us a nice little keyword that we can use to make us sound like we know what's going on. You can say, what's your back office? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you talked about the commission system versus yes. the fee-for-service system. So um, you talked about the commission system and looking for the word, the letters M-E-R, and that's the sort of that ratio. Mm-hmm. And then there's a percentage of that that's coming through to the advisor. So in that situation, there's nothing paid up front. Is that's that correct? Right. It's only based on whatever you've invested. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And then um, to compl- not to complicate things too much, but your advisor can then invest your funds in one of two ways. They can say, okay, well, I'm going to invest it so that the client is in what we call a DSC or a deferred sales charge schedule, or I'm going to invest it into a front-end load fund. And I don't know if you've heard these terms, but no, this is all Greek. Greek? To me. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> it was it all over it my face. Yeah, <laughs> let me break it down. That's okay. This is the part where people's eyes glaze over. So, but I think it's really important mm-hmm. that you know. So. If I'm an advisor and I'm investing your funds in a deferred sales charge, that means that I made uh, a 5% upfront commission and I make a trailer fee every year to hold that account. But if you withdraw or you transfer those funds to another fund, you will be charged that 5% fee if you redeem those funds within the first six years. So it's very important, especially like you think of tax-free savings accounts and how some people just like the accessibility of it. Or if you're designing a retirement income plan and you've got these DSC fees and now I'm starting to take an income from the investments I've saved and I'm having to pay a commission fee? Heck no. I And our, and our industry is really starting to get away from deferred sales charge fees, which I'm so glad to see. Advisors make good money. They don't need this extra um, percentage off the top. So what most advisors do now is they'll put you in front end load or what we call no load zero. And what that means is that a front end load fund, they may charge you an upfront fee and that should be written right on your uh, application form that you sign. Um, Most advisors charge front end load 0% or no load 0%. And so what that means is that you as the client, you don't pay any additional upfront fee the advisor still receives an annual trailer fee. They don't receive any upfront commission either, um, but they do receive a trailer fee to maintain those funds for you. And that's to help service you and, and um, help you with your plan. So then what, um, and if I'm moving too fast here, does that kind of explain it? No, I'm okay. good, I'm good. Okay, I good. might <laughs> look like I'm still glazed over, but I'm good. Yeah. Okay, thinking about it. <laughs> So then that moves into a financial planner planning fee. So what you'll see then is that if a financial planner is doing a full service plan for you, and by a full service plan, I mean like a 15, 10 to 15 page document with 40 pages of supporting documents, putting that together. Some planners will charge uh, a front end load 1% or 2% fee on top of that. So that means not only are you paying the MER of 2.1%, but now you're actually paying 4.1% if the advisor added on an additional um, upfront fee. So um, with that, some advisors will do that in order to charge you for the financial planning. Some advisors do not. I would say the majority do not charge an additional fee for that planning. They just include it as part of their overall parcel unless the plan is of um, 
of magnitude. Like if you're having to really do up a lot of different scenarios, look at different tax planning strategies, look at estate planning strategies, looking at cash flow. Um, I had one client where they brought their plan in and they had 48 investment accounts. Oh my. So to bring those all, and I'm, I'm not talking like 48 investments, I'm talking 48 RRSPs, tax-free savings accounts, non-registered accounts between the couple. So to bring that all together into one plan, that's a lot of work. No kidding. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of work. So a, a financial planner may charge then a flat fee or uh, a percentage on that front end load um, going forward. But it should be a very upfront conversation um, um, with the client. And typically when clients are starting out or you know they've got investment accounts that are pretty simple and they're just moving them over, there shouldn't be any additional uh, planning fees. The MERs that the advisor receives are usually plenty enough to um, to to work off of so well and I think what's interesting about what you're saying is going to see a financial advisor early mm -hmm. is another good thing to do because the younger you are the simpler your situation is and it also allows you to begin planning much earlier. And so I've said this to clients many times before, even on the legal side, when we're talking about transitioning their business enterprise and moving to the next generation. I mean, if you come to me at age 55, yes, there's things I can do. But if you come to me at age 30 and we start planning for the next 20 years, there's so much more that we can do. Yes. And I feel like it's a similar thing with, with your profession as well is that People think, well, I don't have any money. What's the point in going to see an advisor? Well, maybe you don't today, but mm -hmm. you might five years from now. Yeah. And maybe you need to know what's coming on the horizon as opposed to kind of digging your head in the sand. And so I think the earlier that you go and see someone, the better. Yeah. And to, you know, your if your advisor is good, they're going to find out a lot about you in kind of the first initial phone call or first initial meeting to say whether or not it's like, yes, we can move forward and this is what I'm gonna provide to you. Or you know what, you don't have enough assets built up, go open up a, uh, an investment account at the bank, get some savings. Once you've hit you know, 50,000 or $100,000 in your RSP account, then come back and see me and then we can start doing some planning. I also find too in the accumulation phase, clients might be, you know, well, I'm gonna open, I have my pension over here, I'm going to open up an investment account over here. Oh, my friend just started in the business. I'm going to have some investments over here. And that might be okay in the accumulation stage. But when you're transitioning to go from your savings to an income plan, that's when you need to choose one advisor. And one advisor who understands tax planning, who understands how the estate plan is going to work, how everything's just going to tie in together of how that retirement income, income plan is going to work. They need to be, it needs to be one person at that point. Well, and I also think it might be helpful to explain to people a bit about, okay, this is when you first hire an advisor and, and you've explained that and kind of what happens. But I've had a lot of people say to me, well, well, what am I supposed to do on an ongoing basis with my financial advisor? And and I mean, I'm calling you all the time, probably more than you like me to call you. But I feel like before Craig and I make any kind of decision, we typically phone you and we mm -hmm. have a bit of a discussion. So to me, there's an ongoing relationship with mm -hmm. advisors. Can you explain a little bit about, about sort of how that would work on an annual basis with your advisor? Yeah, your advisor should be your non-emotional sounding board. So they should be somebody that you can call up and go, you know, my mortgage is renewing. What do you think of this rate? Do you think it's, do you think it's good? Should I be, 
should I be paying off my mortgage? Should I be investing? What, you know, what sort of the balance? And your advisor should be able to do up a plan and say, well, you know, interest rates are so low at this point that it makes more sense to put money into investments if you're looking at a more long-term plan. Um, and, and your advisor should be providing you sort of an annual update so when when you're in sort of that accumulation stage of you know ages kind of 30 to 55 it might be once every 12 to 18 months where you take a look at the investments you might want to reallocate something maybe the investments changed especially if you're dealing with a financial or, a, or sorry an independent financial advisor they'll have access to thousands of different investments and they'll probably have like their perfect few that they use i always compare you know, being a financial advisor is like uh, buying buying a house. You know, I I go into this house and the client already has investments, and it's like I bought this house and the the master bedroom is painted bright pink. Well, it's not my preference. It could have been their old financial advisor's preference, but I'm going to change it into you know a nice beige that I like. <laughs> We're going from bright pink to beige. I realize that, but. Your advisor should be on an annual basis providing you with the information to say, this is what the markets are doing. This is what your investments are done. I'm happy with the performance. I'm not happy with the performance. Um, are you on track? Are you still saving? Has your job changed? Have you had more kids or have you gotten married? Have you gotten divorced? What, what's your situation like? Do we need to change the estate plan? What's your tax situation? Did you get a raise? Did you lose your job? Did you buy a house? Did you buy more property? You know, you should have those conversations to say, well, how has this financial plan changed so that we can change it um, as part of your investment strategy going forward? Well, and one of the things I've liked with you is that you make me have these conversations because I don't want to talk about this ever. I never want to talk about this. But at least quarterly, I get a little note from you. We should probably meet. Let's meet. Let's do this. And then you sit me down. You give me my one piece of paper. And it's sort of all summarized there where I can see here's where things are at. Mm -hmm. And you direct the meeting and you direct the questions. And then at least I know what is going on, yeah. which is so important. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the biggest complaint I've heard. You know, when I first started in this business 13 years ago, it was the biggest complaint I heard when I was taking on new clients is, you know, I've had an advisor, but I, I never hear from them. I don't know what's going on. I don't even know how to get a hold of them. And I thought, you know what? I do not want to be that person. My background is in marketing and communications. So I think, you know, having that has just brought everything to, like, I want to be informed. I want to know where my financial plan is at. And, and I walk the walk and I talk the talk, and I think your advisor needs to do that too, is that you need to ask them, like, do you own your own home? Do you, have you gone through bankruptcy? Like, what's your investing philosophy? What, what's your money management like? Um, I think it's really important that, that they're, um, they're portraying in their own personal life what they're telling you. <laughs> Otherwise... How can you, I don't know, how can you be a good advisor if, if you don't have your own house in order? So, uh, yeah, I, you got to walk the walk, you got to talk the talk, and then you have to have those follow-up conversations with your clients. Well, and I think it's really good to remember that a financial advisor, like any professional, so whether it's an accountant, it's a lawyer, it's mm -hmm. um, a doctor, a dentist, um, you have to find someone that is comfortable for you. 
And I've always said that to my clients, you know, maybe I'm not the fit for you. Maybe, maybe I'm not aggressive enough for you, or Mm -hmm. maybe I don't have the right personality for you. And that's okay. Because I might be great for the person down the street. And so you really do have to find someone or seek out someone that works for you. And I find a lot of people will find an advisor through word of mouth. Yes. Is that how you find most people get to you? Yes, absolutely. And that's what I prefer. I prefer word of mouth. Um, I prefer client, my, my own clients referring to me. Um, I've gotten a few clients off of Google search now, just, you know, they're, they're kind of Googling and finding me, but no, I would say if you're, you know, talk to friends, talk to family, find out who they're happy with and, and ask them, you know, like, well, how does your advisor get paid? And if they can't answer that question, then uh, maybe they haven't, um, (laughs) really sat down with their advisor and, and asked those hard questions or, you know, what does your advisor do for you? Do you meet with them on an annual basis? How are they, how are they licensed? Do they hold a CFP designation or, you know, how are they qualified in order to provide you advice? Absolutely. Well, then let's move to topic two, because I think this is the other one that a lot of people are very confused about. And I tend to see this on the back end um, as a lawyer when someone passes away and suddenly there's this big confusion over the taxation of RRSPs and TFSAs. And so I thought it might be helpful to talk about, you know, what are those two things? Because most of us have those, if nothing else. And then how are they taxed? So what do you need to be aware of? Perfect. So I'm actually going to expand it. We're going to talk about three accounts. We're going to talk about (laughs) RRSPs, tax-free savings accounts, and non-registered or open accounts. And this is going to be a really good segue into the, our next topic, which okay. is Okay, good for funds. you. Good yeah. for you. <laughs> so these are tax vehicles. These are not investments. So when people say, oh, I went and I bought some RRSPs, it's like, well, what is it invested into? Because within each of those accounts, the RSP, TFSA, or non-registered open account, you can have GICs that we just talked about earn nothing. You can have a high interest you can have a high interest savings account as an RRSP earning 0.15% right now. Or you can have a mutual fund, or you can have a stock, or you can have a private investment, or you can have a segregated fund. So within each of these accounts, you can have uh, whatever you really want to choose from. You can have whatever investments you want. So now it's about the taxation of each account. So let's say I'm gonna take $10,000 and I'm gonna put it into my RRSP account. Well, what's going to happen is I took that with my net tax after tax dollars. So I got my paycheck, taxes came off, I took my 10 grand, I put it into the RRSP. The government's going to tell me, great job, you're saving for your retirement. We are going to give you the taxes back that you paid on that money. So at tax time, I'm going to get a 30 to 40% refund on that $10,000 that I just put in. So I'll get three to $4,000 back. But on the flip end, when you go to start pulling those investments out, they are going to be taxed as income. So what's really important is to, um, so you need to mitigate your tax situation now, but in the future, when you start pulling them out, we need to be aware of, you know, and I'm sure you've dealt with this, Amanda, is, you know, when the when a client passes away, they're deemed to have dis- been, they're deemed to have disposed of all of their RRSP assets on death. So everything in the account gets cashed out and is included in income in the year that they die. Um, So it's really important that you understand that even though you're putting that money into RSPs, you're getting a tax refund right now, at some point when you pull them out, you are going to have to pay taxes on them. 
And at some point, you're going to die. Yes. That's what I always tell clients. They go, well, I'm never going to pull it out. Well, are you going to die? Yeah. <laughs> then you're going to pull it out. And, the, and I guess the one exception to that is it can roll over to a spouse. It can roll over to a spouse. So when we talk about the concept of rollover, it's just the idea of deferring that or pushing back that tax problem, at least until your spouse dies. So yeah. you can give an RSP to a spouse, and then there won't be that tax issue until the spouse actually passes away. That's right. So then we come to the tax-free savings account and non-registered account. And how I explain this is let's take that same $10,000. We got our paycheck. Taxes came off. Take $10,000. We put it into um, a tax-free savings account. And now that $10,000 has grown to $15,000. So it's gained $5,000 of, of um, good growth. Now, if I was to pull that $15,000 out, it would be considered tax-free. So I'm never charged any um, taxes on the growth of it, and I'm never charged taxes as income when I pull it out. And that's, I guess, in contrast to like a savings account at a bank, where if you make enough interest in it, you're going to get that little T-slip at the end of the year that you have to pay tax on the interest. If it's in a tax-free savings account, you can have that growth that's yes. happening, and you're not getting that slip each year that you yeah. have to pay on. And that's the non-registered. Right. So a non-registered cash account, yes, you get the T3 or T5 income receipt, of any interest, capital gain, or dividend growth that that investment saw over the year, whereas you don't in a tax-free savings account. But there's limits mm -hmm. on how much you can put into a TFSA and how much you can take out within a year and replace it. So it's, it's important also to then, if you are using it as an investment account or even as a savings account, that you work with your financial planner on. So many times I see clients with tax-free savings accounts and it's invested in a a high interest savings account at 0.15%. And that is so wrong. Your tax-free savings account should probably be your most aggressive growth account because if it grows, you don't have to pay taxes on that money. So, you know, it gets really exciting. I can <laughs> tell. You're getting excited again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start pounding the table. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So investing is not just about the investments that you choose, but it's about the vehicle that you're going to put it into and have those tax situations. So we talked about the death part of it, of RSPs. Um, let's talk about the death of it on a non-registered account. Okay, in a non-registered account, an example of that again is like a savings account at a bank. That's right, but it can also be an investment account. You can also have non-registered investments inside of it. So typically for average clients, we wanna max out their tax-free savings accounts as much as possible. We want to max out their RSP accounts to the point where they're getting a tax, a good tax benefit now and not offsetting anything in the future. And then if they have anything more to invest, then we look at the non-registered account. And we can do that with, you know, I, I use that RBC Global Balanced Fund with the 2.1% MER, but it grows at, you know, 6% every year. So, well, that's the historical returns, which is not an indicator of future returns. <laughs> There's my legal disclaimer. Yeah, I was like, you just sounded like we were on a pharmaceutical commercial there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I got to say that. It's not guaranteed. What do you mean, though, by non-registered versus registered? So, so non-registered is just another word for cash open savings. Okay. So those words are all interchangeable. They mean the exact same thing. Non-registered, cash open savings so you could have a savings account at a bank earning 0.15 percent and you would get your t3 receipt for that you could have 
a non-registered account with a mutual fund and it would earn 6%. If, if it earns 6% per year, then you would get a T3 or a T5 um, tax receipt that you would have to claim income on that investment every year. Okay, okay. So the problem comes when I have elderly clients and you know we've melted down their RSPs as much as possible because of course we just said those are um, taxed fully. It's you're deemed to have disposed of those RSP and registered assets on death. Um, so we'll typically boost up their tax-free savings account if they have anything investments left over. We move it over to non-registered and we keep it invested. But if you're at a bank and you die and you um, you have a non-registered account, that account is part of your estate. It's part of probate. And, and there's nothing wrong with probate or having your assets go through your estate, but there are ways that we can mitigate that, and that is through segregated fund accounts. Oh, good segue into topic yes. three. <laughs> I love seg funds. I love segregated funds. So a segregated fund is a mutual fund that is held by an insurance company. And with that comes certain guarantees and protection on it. So number one, it has creditor protection. Uh, there's certain times when it does not, but most of the time they have creditor protection on it. So if um, you have to declare bankruptcy or going through anything, you own a business, um, creditors cannot access those uh, investments that are held inside segregated funds. Uh, it sometimes has guarantees on it, although we don't really depend on those a lot anymore as the guarantees are so far stretched out that sometimes they don't pay out, so I don't really depend on that. But what I do like segregated funds for are non-registered investments because you can have a named beneficiary on them, which then bypasses probate. So I have um, a few elderly clients, and actually they all happen to be ladies, and they have you know, two children that when they pass away, they want their assets just to be passed to their kids and then they're done. Um, they don't own any property. They don't have anything else. All they have is all this money inside a non-registered account. And it might have been in a GIC. It might have been in a high interest savings account with a bank. But then when we sit down and I explain the benefits of, okay, well, now you pass away and that GIC that you have that has $500,000 in it and gets and you die and you want it to go to the children, it's going to have to go through the estate, get probated, and then go down to the beneficiaries at the end. Whereas if we hold it in a segregated fund, you can have a named beneficiary, you pass away, the check goes to the kids, there's no probate on the estate. So I mean, this does not work for all cases, um, but it works for very simplistic cases where there might not be a whole lot of assets, so why have it go through um, a probate phase when we can just go through segregated funds? Um, the other thing is that, so segregated funds are sold by insurance advisors, and so then you'll know that you have good tax planning, you have good estate planning um, on that, but then as a business owner, if you have segregated funds, you know that if anybody were to ever come after your business or, you know, like us as professionals, we, you know, typically don't have any um, creditor protection inside of a corporation, can have your assets you can have your investments in a segregated fund and know that they are they are going to be uh, protected so they just they provide a lot of different opportunities and the myth 
before was that segregated funds had larger MER fees on them. But they have come down so much in years that now we were, were in line. And the performance is fantastic on most of them because they're run as mutual funds, except they're held with an insurance company, which makes them a segregated fund. And can you just very briefly explain how a mutual fund works? Mm -hmm. So mutual fund, there's a couple different types. So we've got mutual funds and you have exchange traded funds. So mutual fund is a group of, you know, 500 different stocks and it's in one pool and there's a portfolio manager on it that will choose and hand pick each and every one of those 500 stocks. So typically they work, you know, in a team of 15 people and these 15 people are managing that specific mutual fund, but they will hand pick each one of those different stocks to go in there. And you'll have, you know, global equity funds, so they'll only target companies and stocks that are in Canada, US, and globally. Then you'll have international equity funds, which only target stocks that are global, that are around the globe. They're non, non-North American. Then you'll have Canadian equity funds, and then you'll have things that are called balanced funds. So balanced fund will be a mixture of your equity, so your, your stocks, and your fixed income. So fixed income are things like um, mortgages, private debt, government bonds, corporate bonds, things that you know are very stable but earn one to three percent per year kind of thing. So you want a good mixture of kind of your equity and your fixed income within one mutual fund pertaining to whatever investment style you have. So that's run by one fund manager. They do the fund picking and based on the mandate of the fund. Then we have exchange traded funds or ETFs. And typically there is a portfolio manager on those, but they will pick indexes. So they'll say, okay, I want to, I want to have my fund follow, and I'm just kind of making this up. Um, I want my fund to follow 60% of the, um, uh, of the NASDAQ, 40% of the um, Asian index, and that's going to be my fund, and I'm going to sort of kind of rebalance it every now and again. So your, your fees on those types of ETFs or iShares are going to be much, much lower than a mutual fund because there's not that handpicking of which individual stocks are going to be going into there. They're going to follow more index. So you'll find the fees are lower. You'll find that they'll follow more, they'll be a lot more volatile. So they'll follow the markets a lot more, whereas a mutual fund may capture, you know, 90 to 120% of the upside. But on the downside, they'll be a lot more, a lot more protected. So when markets are falling, they may only capture 40% of that decline. So it depends on kind of where you're at in your investing experience and where how much you're investing on where your advisor is going to recommend and on their own kind of personal beliefs too. So. And I know my recollection is that whenever I see something like that from you, typically it maybe you just give it to me this way, but it's usually in a picture, it's usually in a pie chart, because yes. maybe that's how I react properly. But then it usually will be colored out, and it'll say, you know, this amount is is you know in real estate, and this amount is in this, and so mm-hmm. you're not seeing necessarily all of the details, although I, I can get them if I want them. But yes. whenever I'm looking at them, it's more just here's the big picture of what this portfolio yep. looks like. Are you comfortable with this? Because here's why I think it's good. 
Yeah, and you, I want to make it as simplistic as possible. And one good question to ask your investment advisor is what methodology do they look at when they're choosing the investments to go into your portfolio? So, I mean, they should keep it high level. Otherwise, they're going to bore you and your eyes are going to glaze over, as most of my clients do when I start getting excited and talking about um, investments. But, you know, they're going to look at sort of the, the back end picture of, how is it diversified? Who are these fund managers that are managing these portfolios for you? How often does your advisor meet with these fund managers? Um, you know, what are some of the tools that they use? You know, do they look at the, the R squared and the beta squared? And are they looking at a historical analysis and a scatter diagram? And, you know, all the financial tools that we have to assess whether or not we want our clients to be in these types of funds. So, I mean, that should be you know, a lot of background information, but your advisor should be keeping it really high level saying, well, this is what, you know, what I'm recommending and why. Um, and if you want more information, then that's going to, you know, make a deeper conversation and hopefully your eyes don't glaze over. <laughs> well, I think that's important though. The fact that if yeah. you do want more information, you're entitled to it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And a lot of times people don't feel comfortable with that. People will say, oh, well, this is all I'm getting. Maybe I'm not supposed to have anything more than that. And they won't ask the question. So I think what's really important is you can ask the question. Yeah. It's totally legitimate. And, and if you get pushback on that, well, that's concerning. And don't let the advisor sort of bombard and, you know, talk over your head. If you're not understanding something, just stop them and say, okay, wait, 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 wait. You are talking way too much financial jargon, too much investment jargon. I need you to like bring it down and simplify this in a matter that I can really just simply understand. Because I, I, I find, you know, some some advisors just want to talk in more complicated terms. And, and hopefully I kind of explained in layman terms of how all of this works. But I find some advisors just kind of want to puff their feathers and <laughs> and show how much knowledge that they know when yeah, okay, well, if you've got the letters behind your name, I should assume that you kind of know what you're talking about. So break it down. Give it to me in simplistic terms on what I need to know. Well, and I think that's the case for any advisor because sometimes mm -hmm. I think we all get stuck in our own profession. Oh, yes. And what is very normal to us to talk about every day is not normal for the other person. So, I mean, even as between you and I, I'm a tax lawyer, so arguably I should know some of the stuff, and I do know some of the stuff you're talking about. But a lot of the language that you use, even things like back office, those sorts of things, those are language, that's language from your profession, not mine. And so I think what's really important, if anyone's listening to this, is you shouldn't feel uncomfortable asking the question. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess maybe I'm odd in that I have no problem thinking that I look stupid. I, I'm prepared to ask the question because I want to know because I feel like that makes me better informed. But it's very important that you feel comfortable with any advisor you're dealing with, yes. whether it's an accountant, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's an advisor, that you need to feel comfortable saying, whoa, can you back up the bus for a second? I need you to re-explain that because I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. There is nothing wrong with asking that question because that makes you more informed and then that creates an empowered investor, an empowered uh, person that can make decisions for themselves. And then you'll ask better questions later and make better decisions yes, later. I believe so too. So. I believe so too. And I always say, you know, there's no question that's a silly question. And I think that comes down to the in um, the client advisor relationship too that you if you're you've chosen this advisor if you don't like the way that they explain things or you don't like how they're handling it go find a new one you know there's, there's plenty out there that 
um, or really, you know, try to dig down into why they're doing those things. But yeah, you should be having it. You should have an advisor that you're totally comfortable with in whatever it is, you know, legal, accounting, financial. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Janea. This was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed this today. And, and unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I feel like we may have to have you back on again to keep these topics going. Love it. Anytime, Amanda. So that's all we have time for today, but I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you smile. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are interested in reading or learning more, I invite you to subscribe to my weekly blog, The Tax Chick Blog. And if you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and click subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your advisor for specific advice.